Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. Today, we're continuing our series, Bumper Sticker Theology. We kicked this conversation off last week, uh, and I don't know if you had this experience in the week since we last gathered, but for me, I feel like I've been more aware of bumper stickers that I've seen as I'm driving around. Anybody else this week just like keeping your eye out? Yeah, so um, this has nothing to do with where we're going, but yesterday, I was in Kokomo at Lowe's, and as I was walking out uh, in the parking lot, I passed by this truck that had this bumper sticker on the back of it, and it just said, break for moose. It could save your life. And it had an Indiana plate on it and everything. So I was just like, I mean, that's produced by the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Uh, but I, I mean, I guess be mindful. There's maybe some Indiana moose out there. And uh, for their safety and yours, watch out. But I just like, that's a new one. I've never seen the Break for Moose sticker. But again, that's free. That has nothing to do with where we're going. Um, but the point of this series is that uh, oftentimes, whether they get put on actual bumper stickers or not, uh, Jesus followers, Christians, sometimes develop our own kind of inside language, uh, our own portable little phrases that try and make spiritual truths memorable or maybe even accessible for us. And uh, while there's nothing wrong with that, um, there's a few examples that we're looking at together over these next few weeks. Uh, some we saw in that video, like everything happens for a reason. Has anybody heard that one thrown your way before, especially in a difficult time or something you didn't understand? Somebody throws that out to maybe be a source of comfort. We're going to talk about that uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, this other one, it's kind of cheesy in my opinion, but it's this idea that God is my co-pilot. It was this idea that was actually introduced to the world through a book in the 80s. Uh, we're going to talk about that as we wrap up the series as well. But sometimes these catchy phrases, they're helpful. Uh, sometimes they're memorable. Sometimes, I mean, again, I talked last week. Like I try and uh, make some of the phrases I say here on Sundays uh, memorable. Sometimes I even make them rhyme because that's even extra helpful. But uh, the idea is like that you could have it stick in your brain and you could actually carry it with you. It wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other on a Sunday morning. But the question that we're asking ourselves in, these, in this series is are some of these phrases that have worked their way into American Christianity, uh, are they actually true? Like if we actually test them, uh, does it actually line up with what Scripture says about who God is and, and what he's like and what it looks like for us to follow him? And so we're stopping to consider the theology behind some of our bumper sticker statements to explore uh, whether they actually stand up. And so last week uh, we did so with the idea that God won't give you more than you can handle. Again, that's one that gets thrown out sometimes to try and comfort people in difficult times. Uh, last week, we explained that that idea uh, really came from a bad game of telephone that we've played with the Apostle Paul over uh, several, several years, where he uh, had this instruction in one of the letters that he wrote, uh, basically saying that God won't give you more temptation than you can handle, that God will give you a way out if you're tempted to do the wrong thing. But somehow we've equated that to mean God won't give us more burdens in life than we can handle. And uh, that idea really makes no sense in the context of the story of God, because if you read through the story, it's like every hero of the faith that we know was somebody who was handed more than they could handle, and then God showed up and met them in the gap. So we kind of took it apart last week, and the, the bad news, I guess, the, the harsh truth we talked about, is that sometimes life is more than we can handle. Uh, sometimes life is overwhelming, and in fact, Jesus talked about that. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But the good news uh, that we talked about last week is that God will help you handle all that you've been given. 
So it's not that God won't give you more than you can handle. Sometimes that happens in life. But when that happens in life, God steps in with us. God will help us handle everything that we've been given. So that was last week. Uh, For where we're going today, I want to talk for just a second about kids. And uh, I don't know if like you're like me and you're in the season of raising kids. Uh, I guess that season never really ends once it starts, right? But uh, I don't know if you're in that season. Uh, maybe you're expecting, and that's really exciting news. Uh, either way, all of us were kids at one point, okay? So wherever you find yourself, if you can think back maybe to those days, uh, you know how like kids, as they grow up, go through different phases? We actually leverage this language some in our kids' ministry uh, to try and be intentional about the time that we have with our kids. We say it's just a phase so don't miss it. And that's like my mantra right now as a dad of a four-year-old. I'm like, ooh, I'm tired, right, <laughs> of like the, the constant noise and the constant wiggling and stuff. And then I'm like, I'm going to miss it, right? It's, ju- it's just a phase. I'm going to miss it. I don't miss it right now sometimes. But I, I might someday, I imagine. Um, so my daughter's four. We're going through some phases. Um, if you guys can remember back, maybe to those early parenting days or maybe even about yourself as a child, uh, do you remember the no phase where it does not matter the question? It's just no. I don't want that. No, no. Yeah. So that's a good time uh, for those of us with no patience. But um, there's another phase that showed up. uh, Remember the mine phase where everything, it's like the seagulls from Finding Nemo. And it's like mine, mine. Like your kid's just grabbing everything that it's not nailed down in the house. Um, This is one that I'm experiencing right now. And again, I think this shows up kind of in phases or in seasons uh, as a dad. And that's the I want mama phase. Uh, so every Friday, I, it's my day off, but I spend it at home with my daughter. And uh, man, when it shows up on Fridays, especially, I'm like, come on, kid. We're, like, I'm laying her down for a nap. And she's like, hey, Dad, I'm sad. And I'm like, why are you sad? She's like, I miss Mama. And I was like, I give you a whole day, child, right? Like, <laughs> she'll be back tonight. You're fine. Uh, we actually uh, hung out Friday night. Uh, Ashley was out hanging out with some friends, so I was with Eden. And I also kept getting told, like, well, that's not how Mama does it. And uh, again, in one of my maybe less patient moments, I was like, well, Mama's not here, right? (laughs) It's Dada's rules today. So uh, that's always a good one. And then another one that I don't know if my kid will ever grow out of, because I'm not sure if I ever really grew out of it, but it's the I can do it myself phase. You remember that? Like, especially when they're little and they're like just figuring out that like, okay, mom and dad took care of me for a while, but now I'm like, I'm a person and I'm figuring out what it looks like to be in the world. And uh, so then you get some really amazing outfits when they start dressing themselves and none of the patterns match. And you're like, can I send my kid out in public like this? I don't know, but uh, that's fun. When they start feeding themselves, it's like you've got to put the tarp on the kitchen floor or the dining room floor just to catch all the mess, right? It's chaotic. Eventually, they put makeup on by themselves, and hopefully that marker is washable, right? (laughs) Because it it can be chaotic. Um, Unfortunately, it seems like the DIY phase phases out before paying for college shows up, but I don't know what that's all about. But I I think for um, a lot of us, this phase, the do-it-yourself phase, it's a phase that kind of sticks around. Um, And if we're not careful, even though we grow up, we don't always grow out of that phase and that mentality that we can do things ourselves. Like even all of us in the room who are adults, like, Many of us still put a very high value on the ability to do things our own way, to take care of things ourselves. It's just kind of culturally a a part of the world we live in. Like we do it with our jobs. We want to be successful at our jobs, but sometimes we have a I can do it myself attitude, right? I'm going to show off how skilled I am and impress the boss and get the big promotion and like provide for my family because I can do it myself. We want to make it financially all by ourselves, right? We take pride in the things that we earn and the hard work that we put in along the way. And this dynamic, it, it's kind of something that's uniquely American. It, it's just baked into our culture, and it's not even like a recent phenomenon, uh, but it's like 
the idea of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps has been here from the very beginning for whatever reason. And, and to prove it to you, uh, in the like revolutionary war times, like right before this nation became a nation, uh, there was a, a guy from France who came over just to check out the new world and check out what was happening in the colonies in America. And his name was Alexis de, de Tocqueville. Say that five times fast. Uh, but he showed up and he was just observing the American culture basically. And he's the guy who actually introduced the phrase rugged individualism uh, that sometimes we use to describe what it's like to be an American. And, and here's how he described Americans, uh, again, around the Revolutionary War time, so the beginnings of the nation. He said, each of them, withdrawn into himself, is almost unaware of the fate of the rest. Mankind for him consists in his children and his personal friends. As for the rest of his fellow citizens, they're near enough, but he does not notice them. He touches them, but feels nothing. He exists in and for himself. He, like sounds like a Frenchman, right? Like, come on, no. Uh, uh, it's kind of like harsh, isn't it? To hear our culture and our world described that way. But although that was a long time ago that he was talking about Americans, I think this dynamic can still be really true for us. It's why we have big garages that we can pull our cars in without having to see the neighbors, right? It's like why you put the fence up because you're like, oh my gosh, those people are there. It's probably why you spend so much time on your phone. Like, it, it can be so easy for us to think like it's about me and I'm a self-made person and I'm going to go after what I want and I'm going to do my thing. And maybe that's harsh. Maybe that's even a little convicting today, uh, but it brings me to our bumper sticker theology we're going to explore together uh, with the rest of our time today. And it's this idea that God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that before? God helps those who help themselves. Uh, remember this series, it, it's ultimately about uh, realizing or shining a spotlight that a lot of what's commonly thought of as good theology or, or true about God uh, actually isn't based on what we find in Scripture. It, it actually isn't based on the picture of God we get when we read and we explore the story of God. Often it's just based on popular thinking. Or as we said last week, it's really easy to sound biblical without being biblically sound. Like, like it's really easy to say things that maybe sound true, but when you dig into it, it actually doesn't fit in the story of how God has worked in the lives of people uh, throughout human history. And in fact, the danger of some of these phrases is most of them have enough truth in them that they sound true. And so then we're like, yeah, I, I think that makes sense. But the question is, how much do they actually fit in the larger story of what God has been doing for generations? And I'm not going to embarrass uh, any of us by making you show hands today about this phrase, that God helps those who help themselves, but many of us have believed this at one point or another. Maybe today you walk in and you're like, wait, why are we picking on that one? That just makes sense, right? Uh, in fact, I've learned this this week. I, I kind of debated this week because for me, I was like, I don't know. Do people believe that? Like, do people think that? Uh, and then I found this study uh, by Barna, which is a Christian research group, and uh, man, we place so much value on independence that many of us are inclined to believe this idea, uh, but many of us actually believe that this idea is found in Scripture. And Barna did this research study, and they found that seven out of ten Christians believe that this quote, that God helps those who help themselves, is actually found in the Bible, that it's actually found in Scripture. And some of you are like, yeah, it is, Eric. What are you talking about? Bad news. It's not. Like, it's actually not found in Scripture at all, but because so many of us have this confidence that it is, uh, we believe it when we hear it. We think, yeah, of course God helps those who help themselves. And Look, there's a lot of things that are in Scripture that we don't quote and don't think about. So I don't, like, why does this one stick so much for us? Uh, I think, again, it's because it lines up with that cultural assumption that many of us make. For some of us, uh, we love this idea because it makes us proud of what we've accomplished, 
right? God helps those who help themselves, and look at what I've done. Look at how I've shown up, look at how hard I've worked, and look at how well God has blessed me. Like, sometimes uh, we think we made it on our own, and if others would just do what we did, they would make it too, right? And so that's why we grab onto this, and we can be tempted to ignore how much help and how much others have blessed us along along the way as well. Uh, Sometimes I think we say this so that we don't have to feel responsible for helping other people, if we're really honest. We, We use it almost like an excuse, like, well, if they would just take care of things, right? If they would just get their act together. God helps those who help themselves. Occasionally, I think we say God helps those who help themselves out of frustration with laziness or or disengagement that we see in the world. And we're like, come on, people, like step up and do what you're supposed to do. I'm doing it and and I'm doing well in life. And so God helps those who help themselves, right? You ought to step up. You ought to do your thing. But just like we did last week, it's so important for us to get this right. Because these bumper sticker theology ideas work their way into our faith and into our community, and they share a picture of what God is like, not only for ourselves, but for a watching world. And so just like last week, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to explore where we got this idea and then maybe try and confront it with a little bit of truth. Uh, But unlike last week, this one isn't a misinterpretation of the Bible. This one isn't in the Bible at all. Uh, In fact, the origins of this saying go way back before there were bumper stickers or cars to put them on, uh, because this idea that God helps those who help themselves, uh, from what we can tell, originated in ancient Greece. There was this guy named Aesop. You may have heard of one of his fables before. Uh, He he told these stories that often taught a moral lesson or were meant to instruct people. And so Aesop actually has a line in one of his stories where a character praise to the Greek god Hercules. Uh, You remember him and Meg and Pegasus and all that stuff? Yeah. So he prays to Hercules and he asks for help and Hercules responds back to this character in the story and and says, hey, you need to get to work. And and then the line is recorded in this fable from Aesop where Hercules says, the gods help them that help themselves. And and this was written uh, in the fifth century BC. This was written like 500 years before Jesus came on the scene. So, So this is a really, really old idea. Uh, But credit for that phrase working its way across the pond to America actually goes to one of our founders, a guy named Benjamin Franklin. Remember him? Like the stove and electricity and all that good stuff? Yeah, he also uh, did a lot of publications, and one of his most famous is called Poor Richard's Almanac. And in uh, 1736, so again, before the revolution and all that, uh, he actually recorded in Poor Richard's Almanac this very same idea and wrote for the first time that God helps those who help themselves. And so in that way, it's been baked into the idea of who we are as Americans from the very beginning. And so that makes sense why it's here in America, but why do so many Christians believe that it's actually scripture? Why do so many Jesus followers believe that it's actually a part of what it looks like to be faithful to God? The dangerous truth, especially in our culture and our world today, is that sometimes it's easy for us to mix American values in with Christian values. Sometimes it's easy for us to equate those two things as the same things. And don't get me wrong, there are some American values that do very much line up with and originate from teachings of Jesus and the way of Jesus being lived out. But there are other things that are in our culture that are certainly not in line with how God has called us to live. And so we have to be so, so careful. And this is like a different topic for a different day, and I'm not going to really get political or soapboxy here, but we've got to watch out for this because this kind of thinking, like when when the message of who God is and what it looks like to be faithful to him gets co-opted by the American political system, look out. It is so dangerous. And we've all heard talk in recent days about Christian nationalism 
And uh, I just want to be crystal clear that that's not the way of Jesus. That, that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus didn't bring us to America to create some kind of Christian nation or anything like that. Uh, rather, Jesus told us that the good news of who he is and what he's done is for the whole world. It's for all of us. It's much bigger than just America. So we have to be careful to not mix in American cultural values into our faith and equate them as the same thing. And so at best, uh, if we want to find this idea in Scripture, at best, and through like the most generous reading of Scripture, the closest thing you can find uh, in the Bible to this idea is something that the Apostle Paul wrote in a letter to a church that was in the city of Thessalonica. And, And the phrase reads like this. Paul's writing to this group of Jesus followers, and he says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Which you're like, wow, Paul was a good guy to hang out with, right? That's kind of a harsh rule. Uh, If you were here last week, you know we talked about to like fully understand uh, what is contained in scripture and to fully understand the message of all of these different ancient letters that we have compiled together as the B-I-B-L-E, we have to understand the context in which they were all written. And the same is true for this line. I mean, it's kind of, it feels like a random throwaway line in the midst of this letter, right? Like he's like, hey, by the way, if the people aren't working, don't let them eat. Uh, but back then, to understand what Paul is getting at, uh, back then the early church, uh, as it's recorded in the book of Acts, it says they held everything in common. And, and so what that meant in some ways is early churches often established this common fund within the church that was established basically where people could share what they had and so that people in need could have access to what they need as they needed it. And so in some ways it's kind of like what we would call a benevolence fund today where you just set some money aside as an organization, uh, which we do this here at Story. We, we try and set aside some resources to help people when they need it. But in the early church, it was just common practice for them. They had this fund where if people needed, they could take from it. And, and then if they were able to, they could contribute to it. And, and on and on it went. But in this situation that Paul is writing about, there were some people who were slacking in their own work, essentially not contributing anything back into the common fund or back into the community, they were totally relying on the efforts of others, even though they were able to work and able to do something. And so Paul calls them out in this letter. In this letter, Paul is not saying everybody needs to go out and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it on your own. Not at all. Paul is addressing a very specific situation in a very specific church context, and he's setting up some healthy boundaries here, basically saying like, hey, it's a good thing for us to help each other out. It's a good thing for us uh, to lift each other up when we're down. We should do this, but that's not an excuse to not work and to not do your thing if you can. But you should also contribute if you're able. And so if you don't work and you could work, then you don't eat because you should work, right? And so that's what Paul was getting at. That's it. Otherwise, there's not a whole lot else throughout all of Scripture that implies or backs up this idea that God helps those who help themselves. And in fact, there's a whole lot throughout Scripture that says the exact opposite. Scripture is certainly not silent about who God helps and how he helps them. And in fact, I'm going to run through a couple of them for you really quickly. Uh, In Proverbs 31, if you don't know Proverbs, uh, Proverbs is this book of ancient wisdom, and a lot of it are are just like quick one-liners that you can just digest uh, along the way. But in this section, in Proverbs 31, it it takes a little bit of a different turn. Uh, I would call it like the Forrest Gump section of Proverbs, because the author of Proverbs starts talking about things that his mama said, things that mama taught him. And so uh, Proverbs 31 opens up, and he says, Mama said, don't chase after women. Mama said, "Uh, don't drink too much. Mama said that you shouldn't numb your feelings out. And then he gets to verses 8 and 9, and here's what mama says. 
Mama says, make sure you speak out on behalf of those who have no voice and defend all of those who have been passed over. Make sure to open your mouth, judge fairly, and stand up for the rights of the afflicted and the poor. There's a lot of places throughout Scripture where we're told to like step back for a second, to be still, to rest, to contemplate, right, to take a moment away. Uh, but in this passage, we're urged to speak up and to stand up twice in just as many sentences. Okay, there's two sentences, and they both say, hey, speak up. God urges us to say something and to speak out specifically on behalf of those in need. Similarly, uh, in Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah was a prophet who essentially in that day spoke on behalf of God to the people of God. And in describing what God's character is like, in Isaiah 25, the prophet says this, he says that God has been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, and a shade from the heat. So in both of these passages, you can see that God shows up and God does help. In fact, God is described as a defense for the helpless, that, that, that we as his followers are meant to be uh, with our eyes out, ready to speak up for those who are in need. And, and there's a guy named Jim Wallace who founded an organization called Sojourners. Uh, basically, it's a Christian organization that tried to advocate uh, in areas of oppression or social justice in our society. They try and shine a light and, and really elevate the voice of the voiceless. Uh, but Jim Wallace tells the story of founding that organization and trying to step out and meet practical needs. And, and he says, here's how they actually started. That one of the first activities they did was to find every verse of scripture about the poor, wealth and poverty, and social justice. They found more than 2,000 texts that they then cut out of an old Bible. So he says, when we look at the Bible without those verses, we're left with a Bible full of holes. In other words, this idea of, of having compassion on other people, on, on meeting the needs of those who have needs, it, it's essential to what it looks like to have a picture of who God is. Like a casual reading of scripture makes it clear that God cares for those who are vulnerable. That, that there are those around us who need an advocate, who need somebody to speak up on their behalf, somebody to help them out, somebody to come alongside them. There's people who need our voice, maybe because they don't have a voice, or more likely because they've been shouting as loud as they possibly can and we're just not hearing them. We're not creating space for them at the table. Not only is the saying, God helps those who help themselves not true, I think it's really dangerous because it can keep us from having compassion and having our eyes open to the needs around us, to the people around us who need our help. And I believe God's asking each of us to speak up and to speak out, to not just open our mouth, but also to, to open our eyes to the needs around us, to the voiceless, to the poor, to the oppressed. And again, those sound like big categories, but I promise there's people like that around each and every one of us. And do you know why God wants us to see them and speak up for them and look out for them? It's Because they matter to him. Everyone matters to God. And, and so God wants us to have our eyes out for them. And by the way, it's important to notice something that mama said in that proverb, uh, something that God wants us to see, that God calls us to judge fairly. He, he says, make sure uh, to speak out on behalf of those who have no voice, defend those who have been passed over, open your mouth and judge fairly. And man, how often is it that we see somebody who we would say they're helpless or they're in need and we make a snap judgment about what got them there, right? We make a snap judgment about maybe who they are as a person or, or the decisions they've made in life. And, and that's, again, where this response comes up sometimes. We're like, well, God helps those who help himself, like figure it out. 
So often we make snap judgments, but this idea of judging fairly means that we're supposed to look beyond just what we can see at face value. That when we see a person in a difficult situation, when we see someone struggling, whether it's poverty or, or homelessness or something else, judging fairly means we don't just see them as the sum of whatever got them there, but that we're willing to be curious and treat them as a human being, that we're willing to go beyond the surface judgment and, and actually explore the, the different influences that may have contributed to their situation. This phenomenon uh, is written about in the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. It was this huge success that uh, kind of blew up. It's a great book, kind of in like the leadership space, I guess. Uh, but Malcolm Gladwell writes this about this phenomenon. He says, those who are successful, in other words, are most likely to be given the kinds of special opportunities that lead to further success. And isn't that true, if we're honest? That, that often what happens is people who, who achieve some level of success, like that's great in and of itself, but often it also opens up the door to make it easier to have opportunities for more success in the future. Uh, that often this phenomenon shows up. And in fact, he goes through and he lists these different examples uh, about some of these special opportunities that can show up. And uh, one of my favorite examples in the book is about how you can become a great hockey player in Canada. And, and if I were to ask you, like, how do you become great at hockey in Canada? You would probably say, like, you practice a lot, right? You're, you get on the ice and, and you work hard and you figure it out, you put in the effort. Well, it turns out that if you like do the research, uh, any elite group of hockey players in Canada, typically there's this trend where 40% of the players were born between January and March, 30% of the players were born between April and June, 20% between July and September, and about 10% between October and December. And that's kind of interesting, right? There's this like arc where you look at when the players on these teams were born, and it's like way heavy loaded. Why is there 40% of great hockey players born between January and March. Well, Gladwell explored this, and what he discovered is this. He says the explanation for this is quite simple, and it has nothing to do with astrology, nor is there anything magical about the first three months of the year. It's simply that in Canada, the eligibility cutoff for age class hockey is January 1st. So a boy who turns 10 on January 2nd could then be playing alongside someone who doesn't turn 10 until the end of the year, and at that age, in pre-adolescence, a 12-month gap in age represents an enormous difference in physical maturity. So just based on when these kids were born, they have an advantage right out of the gate. Right? If you're a boy born between January and March, or maybe girls too, I don't know, I think this study was for boys. Uh, if you're born between January and March in Canada and you want to be great at hockey, you've got an advantage. And it's due to no effort of your own. That might seem like a silly example, and you're like, Eric, why are you talking to me about hockey? Go back to America, right? But uh, but the example might seem silly, but if something as simple as the month in which you were born could have influence on the outcome of how good you are at hockey, how much more, in the people that we are often so quick to judge, how much more might mental illness or, or socioeconomics or race increase or decrease access to what Gladwell calls special opportunities for success? Let's look at some more outlier stats that are shared, okay? Like, how might these things impact someone's success? How about this, 25% of the homeless population in America suffers from mental illness. Do you think that that impacts their ability to be able to secure housing? Uh, would you judge those incarcerated less harshly if you knew that 60% of young men who are incarcerated were in the foster care system? That there was some kind of instability at home prior to whatever decisions they made? Would we see prostitution differently if we knew that 80% of prostitutes uh, claim to have been sexually assaulted as children. See, the context matters. The, the context matters. And here's the deal. Judging fairly 
means we recognize that there are factors beyond simply like pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps in, in all of the people that you or I are tempted to judge so quickly. That there's other factors that influence outcomes positively or negatively. And judging fairly means we recognize, hey, I didn't do it all on my own and neither has anyone else for positive or for negative. Right? That, that all of us have needs along the way. So it, what I hope you're getting today is it's completely opposite to the message of Scripture to imply that God helps those who help themselves. Instead, here's the truth. It's that God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. That word can't is important. Okay? It's, it, it's the opposite of what we so often think. And do you know how I know that statement is true? It, it's because at the heart of following Jesus, it, it, for me, for my faith, right, at, at the heart of all of it, there's this understanding that while I was far from God, God moved in my direction. That, that I was broken, uh, that I have messed up, that my relationship with God was broken, and, and that there was nothing I could personally do to repair it. That no amount of good behavior made up for it, that I could bring every report card ever to God and it still didn't measure up to, to what I ought to have done. And yet, God provided a way back anyway. God helped me when I couldn't help myself. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, and you understand what it means to follow Jesus, that's your story too. God helped you when you couldn't help yourself. Or John, who was close friends with Jesus, he actually writes about this dynamic in this way in his letter that we know is 1 John. Uh, many of us know John 3.16, this famous verse, but I think 1 John 3.16 might be equally as important for us to bake into our memory. Uh, here's what John says. He says, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers as well. See, God helped us when we couldn't help ourselves. That's like good news gospel 101, that God moved in our direction. He sent Jesus to create a way for us to find our way back to him. And for my story, right, he, he sent people into my life who helped me connect with and reconnect with faith. He, he sent people along the way who helped me understand what it looked like to follow Jesus. He pursued me until I was found. And if you're here and you follow Jesus, that's your story too. God helped me when I couldn't help myself. And because of this, John goes on. And then he offers some instruction to those of us in the room who would call ourselves Jesus followers. And I love the way the message translation says it. John says, this is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see a brother or sister in need and you have the means to do something about it, but you turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears. And you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. And, and that language is kind of harsh, right? It's kind of sobering. Like, like God's love disappeared and you made it disappear. I want to be clear. I don't think John is saying like that if you walked by somebody in need or you saw somebody and you didn't step up and meet that need, that God's just like, whoosh, love revoked. Like, I don't think that's what John is getting at at all. You're not that powerful, frankly. Uh, but what John is saying, I think, is that it's inconceivable for a Jesus follower who has received so much love that we didn't deserve, received so much love from Jesus. It's inconceivable for us to then see a need of somebody else and to judge harshly and to wall off towards that need and to think we're better than them. It, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And so if we don't show compassion on the needs surrounding us, the evidence of God's love active in our life disappears. The, the evidence isn't there. There's nothing in our life. Like you may inwardly say, yes, I receive God's love, but if you don't share it, nobody sees it. It disappears. And, and, and 
the same is true on the opposite side, that when we help those who can't help themselves, when we show up and we serve and we meet needs, God's love becomes visible in our midst. The evidence of God's love at work in our life shows up. And I was thinking about this, uh, and I was reminded of a couple of friends of mine. Um, They now live out in California, but a few years back they were a part of a church that I got to lead at. Um, Their names are Emily and Stu. And uh, Emily and Stu are... They're awesome to me um, because they're just really ordinary people. Like Emily uh, played softball in college and love that. She coaches it still uh, to this day. Stu, Stu is like Hank Hill, but a little cooler because he sold propane, okay? And he loved the Colts. And like, like, honestly, I'm not picking on Stu today. If you could like pick just like stereotypical Indiana male, it's Stuart Hayes, right? Like, <laughs> and that's the best thing about him. He's just so ordinary and, and, and just like normal people, like you and me. Uh, but what I love about Emily and Stu and their story, uh, that's their daughter Marie uh, right there in the middle. They adopted her from Haiti. And uh, Emily and Stuart's story intersect with Haiti and, and some of the needs that they saw on a trip uh, to that country where they were serving alongside a mission organization. And, and while Emily was there, um, she heard the story of a woman named Nadej. And Nadej uh, was a woman who had experienced uh, some violence, some sexual violence or gender-based discrimination. And when Emily heard her story, it broke her heart. And so Emily, right, just like everyday person, Emily comes back to America and she's wrecked by this idea. She's wrecked by this idea that there's these women who have had this terrible experience and they have no resources to heal and to recover and to get back on the path uh, of taking back their life. And so long story short, over the course of, of several years, Emily tells the story of Nadej. Emily starts dreaming and, and brainstorming about what it could look like to do something to help in this scenario. And, and because other people heard the story and they came alongside, right? They heard of some people who could not help themselves. And, and so they decided to get involved. And now there's this safe house that exists in Haiti where women can come. And, and they've had actually graduates now coming through the doors of this house uh, where women can come after they've experienced this kind of violence and they can heal and they can recover, and they can learn how to move forward. I love Emily and Stuart's story because they are such ordinary people <laughs> who saw a need, and they chose to put God's love into action. And, and like, I don't know, it's crazy to me that I know people like this who are like, yeah, we're going to start an organization in a different country to meet these needs. It, it sounds like so out there and so other, right? But here's what I want you to know today. They sat in seats just like you are just a few years ago. They, they sat there and, and they were like, hey, I want to go to church. <laughs> I, I, I just want to figure out what it looks like to have a relationship with God. And, and through that relationship with God, they discovered that they were actually empowered to meet the needs of people around them. Here's why I share that story with you. I think God wants to do the same thing through you. Now, don't get me wrong. We're not like, you go start something in Haiti and you go start something in Haiti. That's not what I'm saying today. I think it should probably start like down your street right, the needs that are around all of us. It could start in the life of this community uh, and getting involved in some of the problems that we see, not just judging from a distance, but actually becoming the solution. Uh, but here's what I would say to make this practical today. Like, if it's true that God helps those who can't help themselves, then step one for all of us is to get a little more comfortable admitting our needs. It's to get a little maybe less American and a little more Christian, right? Because it's very, very American to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And there's some admirable stuff to that. I'm not trying to tear it all down. Pulling yourself up by your bootstraps might be American, but laying yourself down in humility is Christian, right? Admitting that you have needs, opening yourself up to God and to God's people, 
right? Saying like, God, I need you. I need you to help me. I can't help myself, and it's not my job to just figure it all out on my own. Maybe for you, that's your starting point in responding to the truth of what God is actually like. You can admit your needs to him, and you can find him a defender of the helpless, the one who shows up, and and hopefully you find his people to be the same way as well. And and if you're here and that's you, right, you want to be a follower of Jesus, then the other thing that this means for us is we need to be so much slower to judge others. We need to be so much slower to make assumptions about what got people where they are. Judge fairly, right? So when you see whoever it is, those people, whether it's homeless people or Democrats or Republicans or whatever. Like when you see them and you're like, and you assume everything about them, what if instead you decided to be slow to judge? You decided to get curious. You decided to actually like get to know them and, and maybe through that find the ways that you can help them. Find the ways that you can be the presence and the love of God active and present in their life. If you do this, if you discover needs around you, then all of us as Jesus followers, we're called to be a voice for the voiceless. We're called to be people who look out for needs, look who's not being invited to the table and invite them in. And again, that's the beautiful part of how Jesus and his movement have really influenced our world. Again, I said like not all of American culture comes from Jesus, but some of it does. And you know what parts do? The parts that see the value of every single human being. It was the Jesus movement that first saw women and children and named them as equally valuable as men. And in some church context, that's hard to imagine now, right? But, but that's what Jesus did. He elevated the status of everyone that he met. He welcomed in outcasts. It was this extraordinary movement. And some, at some points, in some places, all of us can be guilty of it. We've quit moving with that movement. But like for us here in Peru, we'll bring it closer to home. Can you imagine what it would be like if people knew of Story Church not because of our incredible theology or skinny jeans or lights or whatever, but if people knew about Story Church because they're a group of people who advocate and empower for those in need rather than just condemning and judging them. Hey, what if that was our reputation? What if they're like, I don't know what I think about the resurrection or Jesus or all that crazy whatever, uh, but man, I love how they treat people. Man, I love the impact that they're making in our world. What if people were envious of us because of how well we treated others? Man, I think that would look a lot like that first century church again. I think that would look a lot like the movement that Jesus started moving. And here's the bottom line. It's childish for any of us to believe that we can do it by ourselves. My four-year-old believes it right now. (laughs) And she's learning, right? And there are some things she can do, and that's my job is to give her agency and help her figure it out. But it's not for her to do it on her own. It's not that God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. People like you and people like me. And so what that means is that we can honor the God who helped us when we also keep our eyes out for how we can help others. When we extend compassion and we bring the presence of God to bear in the midst of these situations, that we can actually become the agents of God's love in a world that desperately needs him. So to wrap up today, uh, we're actually going to do an experience called communion, this thing that the church has actually done for thousands of years. And uh, as you walked in, you should have received one of these cups. If you didn't, uh, just throw up your hand really quick, and I'll deputize Daryl to run one out to you. Um, The thing about communion, again, it's this practice in so many ways. It's a practice that's about our neediness. It's a practice where we admit that we're broken and, and that we need forgiveness, and we receive in a fresh way the presence and the activity of God in our lives. We discover the grace of God when we admit, I can't do it on my own. Communion goes back to uh, the last meal Jesus had with his followers. 
and he took bread and broke it, and he said, this bread represents my body that's going to be broken for you to forgive your sins, to forgive those ways that you and I all miss the mark. And, and the guys didn't understand it at the time, but likewise, he took a cup, and he said, this cup represents a new covenant or a new kind of relationship that I can have with you, where I'm present and I'm active and I'm moving in our life and, and I'm making you more like me. And again, the guys are like, what, what does that mean? And Jesus instructed them, every time you take it, remember me. And a few days later, it all came into picture, came into focus, as Jesus sacrificed his life willingly to make a way for all of us in our brokenness to find our way back to God. That his blood was actually spilled to create a, a new kind of relationship where we have access to God. Uh, you may or may not know this, but uh, this past week in the church calendar, uh, we kicked off a season called Lent. And it's not like pocket Lent, but uh, the season is really it's about admitting our neediness. It's about acknowledging our brokenness, that all of us are broken, that the state of affairs in the world is not good, and that all of us are in some way responsible for it. But it's also this admission of our need and inviting God to redeem it and, and to move in it, to meet us in the area of our need. So I know we do communion differently at different times, but uh, just today, I guess again in the spirit of us being a community that is marked by, by people who are willing to admit our neediness and who are willing to receive from God and then spread that love back to others, uh, I'd love to invite you to just take these elements together with all of us, uh, like as one church family or one church body. Uh, if you'd tear back the top layer and grab uh, the wafer, I want to invite you to take and eat and remember Christ's body broken for you, to forgive you and to meet you in the midst of your neediness. Let's remember him. And in the same way, if you take the cup and take and drink, remembering the blood of Christ spilled for you so that you could have his life running through your veins, so that you could have his love present and active with you wherever you go, to so take and drink and remember him. Let me pray for you. Jesus, this uh, practice, sometimes I think in our modern church and the way that we do it, we kind of distill it down a little too much because we, we forget and, and we, we gloss over admitting our need for you. But God, today I pray in this moment that your, present would be, that your presence would be obvious and that your spirit would make it obvious to us that we need you, that we don't help ourselves, that you moved in our direction when we were helpless, that when we were still sinners, you died for us. And that you did that, not to leave us the same, but so that we could have your life living in us and living through us. That your love would become obvious and evident through us as your presence, your body active in this earth. And so God, I just want to thank you. Thank you for meeting us in our area of need. Thank you for forgiving us, not because we deserved it or because we got it together, but because you love us and you have grace for us. And God, I pray that we could become people who extend that same grace to everyone that we meet that we would become people who are marked by your love in action. God, may we never believe the lie that, God, that you only help people who help themselves, but instead help us remember and be grateful for how you met us in our need and in response help us to meet the needs of others. So God, kind of as we prayed last week, I, I pray that you start something here today in us, that we would be more mindful of the needs around us, that we would be slower to judge and quicker to get involved, quicker to get curious about other people. 
And God, through your presence at work in us and through us, that we could bring heaven here on earth, right here in Peru, Indiana, and that people would look at us and be envious of how well we treat one another in your name. God, we pray and we ask all of this in your name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.